Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Walter Himmel. Do not be a victim of a test. Chris Hicks. Yeah, I don't know that science will ever eliminate bias completely. And Dave Deshensky. Slavishly following anything from evidence-based medicine is a recipe to get you into trouble. The test is not going to tell you what the diagnosis is, but it's going to tell you if it's more likely or less likely. Individual practice variation is, is part of what we do, and I don't know that we're ever going to eliminate it. So it's not some evil plot by government, by pharmaceutical companies, or by thought controllers. Just before we jump into this episode on diagnostic decision-making, I just want to make a very quick announcement that now you can get all the podcasts, including all the main episodes and best-case evers and journal gems, all through iTunes. So you can use any podcast app you want and get automatic downloads of all the EM Cases podcasts through iTunes. You don't need to go to the podcast setup anymore on the website. In the first part of this series of podcasts on diagnostic decision-making, we're going to talk about diagnostic error in terms of how best to incorporate evidence-based medicine and risk tolerance into our practice so that we can make the best diagnostic decisions for our patients and the medical systems we work in. Now, the first question I asked myself when researching the topic of diagnostic decision-making was a simple one. Are we good diagnosticians? Or are we missing important life or limb-threatening disease all the time? Well, I was surprised to find out that in the Harvard Medical Practice Study from a few years back, diagnostic errors accounted for 17% of preventable errors, a jumbo jet a day of deaths in the United States. Well, that was in the past, you might be thinking. Certainly, we're doing better since then. Again, I was stunned to find out from a systematic review of autopsy studies conducted over four decades that nearly one in 10 patients had a major antemortem diagnostic error, a figure that's fallen by about 5% despite all of today's advanced imaging and testing. So the next question I asked myself was, what's causing this poor diagnostic performance? There's many factors besides what the clinician knows that dictate the success of making a diagnosis that are beautifully encapsulated in the Ottawa M&M model. There's patient factors like language barriers, for example, clinician factors like use and misuse of evidence-based medicine, fatigue, illness, emotional distress, a recent bad outcome. There's cognitive factors like all the different cognitive biases we talked about in episode 11 and we'll revisit again in this podcast. There's teamwork failure between members of a team, across shifts, across specialties, and there's system failure, triage issues, waiting times, ED crowding, and the like. Finally, there's the wider community issues like regulatory issues and issues of access of care. But don't worry. With the help of Dr. Himmel, whom you all know by now, Dr. Hicks, simulation master, who's dedicated a big part of his career to understanding and teaching how we make decisions and communicate effectively in difficult situations. And Dr. Deshensky, who oversees the Quality Assurance Program at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. We're going to give you a deep understanding of these factors, as well as strategies to help you on the road to becoming a master diagnostician without over-testing and grinding your department to a halt. So welcome, Dr. Himmel. Good morning. I'm thrilled to be here again. Dr. Hicks. Hey, Anton. Great to be back. And Dr. Deshansky. Morning, Anton. My pleasure to be here again. Great. So let's start our discussion on diagnostic decision-making with the pros and cons of evidence-based medicine and how risk tolerance affects our decision-making. So EBM is awesome, right? On the one hand, EBM is awesome. It's achieved some amazing things over the last 25 years. The Cochrane Collaboration, setting standards for research, offering clinical practice guidelines. But on the other hand, there have been some concerns over the years that experimental evidence could devalue basic science and the tacit knowledge that accumulates with clinical experience. Some docs have questioned whether results in general from clinical studies can really inform decisions about real patients who rarely fit the textbook description of a disease and differ from the patients that are studied in the research trials. 
Other issues with EBM are that the volume of evidence, especially clinical guidelines, have become unmanageable, that statistically significant benefits may be marginal or even meaningless in real clinical practice, that inflexible rules and technology-driven prompts may produce care that's management-driven rather than patient-centered, and that evidence-based guidelines often don't apply to the very complex patients with multiple medical issues. So Dr. Himmel, how should we be integrating EBM into our practice in general? Well, the first sense one has to get is what in the world is evidence-based medicine? And evidence-based medicine's intent was never to be a tyranny, never to be a form of manipulating physician behavior. So David Sackett said evidence-based medicine was the practice of it based on three things. The best evidence available, combined with the clinical expertise and experience of a physician, combined with the needs, the values, and the desires of the patient. All three put together. David Sackett also pointed out that evidence-based medicine might actually increase the cost of medicine, not decrease the cost of medicine. So it's not some evil plot by government, by pharmaceutical companies, or by thought controllers. It's a tool to be used to assist decision-making. And in that sense, I think it's a great tool. But if obviously it can be abused and misused. So I'd like the listener to stop here and think about how you think evidence-based medicine should be used and how you think it could be abused. And then we'll hear from Dr. Himmel giving some examples. So let's think of an example. So we've all been treating sepsis for many, many years. And Manuel Rivers came up with a paper probably 10, 15 years ago describing goal-directed therapy. Now, the trouble with this paper was it was a multi-interventional trial. He talked about blood pressure. He talked about transfusions. He talked about parameters to measure. One could never really be sure what really counted and what didn't. Well, in 2014, if you can believe it, there have been at least four major papers published on sepsis, and they address the following topics. Does protocolized care matter? What's the real transfusion threshold? Is mean arterial blood pressure of 65 a good goal or 80? These are all fundamentally important questions. And there have been papers looking at each individual topic. So let's look at three little papers real quickly. One was called a process trial, comparing protocolized therapy in which it was mandated to put in the central line and measure the originally described parameters. Another paper is called a TRIST trial, transfusion requirements in severe sepsis. Should you transfuse at 70 or should you transfuse at 90? And another paper was about sepsis and mean arterial pressure. Should your MAP be 65 or should the MAP be 80? Each of those three questions were looked at specifically in a prospective trial. And they provided three useful answers. Answer number one, does protocolized care really matter? Is it absolutely mandatory to do it as described? And the answer is no. What matters is wise care, care which has respect for volume replacement, for maintaining mean arterial pressure, and using good clinical parameters. All the parameters described originally are not necessary. Do you have to transfuse at 70 if the patient's not getting better? And the answer is no. Transfusing at 70 was just as good as transfusing at 90. You did not have to transfuse at very low levels, at least traditionally very low levels. And the next question was, was it better to have a mean arterial pressure of 65 or a mean arterial pressure of 80? And the answer was, they were both clinically effective. So I think looking at those papers, you can be reasonably confident in 2014 in treating sepsis, at least in regards to those three parameters. And surprisingly, until this year, you could never really be sure what mattered and what didn't. How do you actually incorporate all that information into your practice? Evidence-based medicine is a tool. You have to look at the best evidence. You've got to consider your clinical experience. You have to look at the patient's values. And of course, you have to use critical thinking and looking at the evidence. Just because it's published, just because they're talking about it, doesn't mean it's good, doesn't mean it's bad, doesn't mean it's relevant. Every application of evidence requires 
critical thinking based on your own assessment, on listening to other people's assessments, and an integration into your entire box of decision-making. It's a great tool, but it's not a religion. I agree completely about this notion that evidence-based medicine and the correct application of it is a triad. Uh, and the place that I see people fall down most commonly is in not necessarily understanding what the evidence tells us, but in applying that evidence to the correct population of patients. I'll give you an example. I had a, a medical student who saw a patient with an ankle injury, and she was very keen and happy that she could apply the ankle rules. She knew them. She was able to tell them to me. And then to confidently say that the patient did or did not need an x-ray based on the ankle rules. And so I asked her, as I often ask people when they tell me about the ankle rules, so what sort of injury did the patient have? And I think in that circumstance, the patient had had something fall on their foot or on their ankle or something like that. And so I asked the further question, okay, well, what sort of injuries were the ankle rules designed to assess? And that's the question you find most learners or most people who are sort of new to evidence-based medicine can't answer. Of course, the answer is it's specifically for acute inversion injuries of the ankle and nothing else. And people apply the rule to a mechanism of injury for which it was never designed to assess. And we see that all the time in people applying, you know, the results of a decision rule or a clinical practice guideline or a treatment recommendation to the population that it was never really meant or intended to be applied to in the first place. So if I can see it, most commonly I see the misapplication of the evidence to the wrong population of patients. And I think, you know, that's a real recipe for error and making mistakes. So that brings up the question, every study has a very specific population. And so when can you and when can't you apply what you read in a paper or that someone gives you a review of in a paper? When can you apply that to your practice? Because you're never going to have the exact same population as what's in the paper. Book after book after book says you've got to ask yourself three questions whether you're looking at a therapeutic trial, whether you're looking at a diagnostic trial. Question number one, is the study free from bias? Number two, is the result of the study important and significant? Not only is it statistically significant, but is it clinically important? And number three, and maybe the most important, if the study is free from bias and if it's valid, and if the results are significant, the last question is, does it apply to your patient? Are their patients the same as your patients? Is their system the same as your system? Are the requirements of the patients in their studies what you can provide to your patient? And if the answer is absolutely not, the study is not relevant. Now, the truth of it is, most studies are so controlled they're never totally applicable to everyday practice unless you're profoundly fortunate. So you have to often be very much aware of what you can provide, what your patient's values are, where you're practicing, what you can do if you can match the criteria of the study. If you can't, you've got to be very careful. So EBM is fantastic. But like all fantastic things, like all powerful devices, whether they're helicopters or nuclear power, you've got to know what you're doing. So I, I agree with all of those points. And I, I think that really underlines one of the core challenges for evidence-based medicine is that that applicability piece and when we should actually be applying it to the patient in front of us, even the best done study, even the best done decision instrument really can't ever anticipate every single clinical scenario. So there's no substitute for applying your clinical gestalt and for taking into consideration the specifics of the individual that you have in front of it. Slavishly following anything from evidence-based medicine is a recipe to get you into trouble. We should never be absolutely dogmatic about almost anything, including that statement that I just made. So evidence-based medicine really is a, a moving target, and I think we need to be aware of that. We need to be able to uh, adjust our expectations of it and adjust how we apply it in our clinical practice as well. So this is important. How to assess whether a study that you read or hear about can be applied to the patient in front of you. You need to ask yourself three questions. Is the study free from bias? And we'll have some key high-impact resources on how to assess if a study is biased 
on the blog post and written summary. Number two, are the results clinically significant? Number three, do the results apply to the patient on the stretcher in front of you and in the system that you're working in? When it comes to this third aspect of applying EBM to your practice, the notion of shared decision-making comes up. So let's hear what our guest experts have to say about shared decision-making. Well, let's think what shared decision-making is. What it basically applies in the simplest sense is that decision is based on the opinion of the physician and the opinion of the patient. That's the theory. And of course, the patient has to have an informed opinion. Who's going to inform the patient? By and large, it's got to be the physician. So it sounds like a pretty good theory. Uh, the problem is to inform the patient properly, you've got to be objective and you have to basically suppress your own belief and preferences and be as objective as possible. That's very, very tough. Then not only do you have to express the relevant concepts, you've got to be reasonably convinced your patient understands the point you're trying to make. And then if they understand the point, you can come to a consensus about what you want to do. Now, I think it's great in theory. I think like most great goals, something we're attempting to achieve, but it's almost impossible to achieve consistently because of time, because of communication problems. There's a fundamental question I often ask people, and it's this, here's the question. If two people are having a discussion and each knows exactly what the other person is saying, what do you call that? Well, it's called a miracle. And we don't see miracles too often. And of course, uh, that's the problem. Now, of course, remember, informed decision-making, like informed consent, is not really informed manipulation. I have to add to that. I think what you say about being objective is important. I don't know that it's really ever possible to subtract yourself and your experience entirely from the equation. I would argue that we actually have another, an additional role, in addition to everything you just said, to play when we're advising a patient, trying to give them an opinion based on evidence. And I guess the key word there is, is an opinion. I don't think it's fair to sort of present the evidence for, I don't know, whether or not this patient should start post-exposure prophylaxis after a needle stick injury. I don't think we're doing our jobs as practitioners to say, well, here's all the evidence about whether you should start it. Here's the nature of your injury and the risks of transmission of hepatitis HIV. Now you make the decision. I think our additional role is to then interpret that evidence and offer an opinion. I do see people fall down in that role sometimes and they, they just kind of shared decision making is often misinterpreted as well. Just let the patient decide. And that's as interpreted as patient centered care. But if all of us in this room are sitting around struggling with the nature of evidence-based medicine and how to interpret it and apply it to populations and to patients, what do you imagine the patient is going through when you sit there and rattle off all the reasons why they should and should not have a CT head and what a decision rule is and whether or not they're at risk for an intracranial hemorrhage and then say, well, so, you know, that's the information. Now I'd like you to decide if you need a CAT scan or not. So we do have that very complicated role of offering an opinion. And that opinion can't ever really be, you know, subtracted from our experience and our prior cases. And it's prone to all the biases and heuristics and so on that, that uh, I think that's true, but it, I think it becomes very difficult to subtract that human element from the discussion. Yeah. I, I think that communication of risk is one of the most challenging things that we actually have to do in, in medicine. And I mean, we sit around tables like this and read papers and write papers about how to assess risk and, and we struggle with it ourselves. So I agree that trying to make a, a patient understand medical risk in the short time frame of a, a clinical encounter in the emergency room is often really, really challenging. And I think the one of the things that helps us in that when we're trying to do this shared decision-making is really trying to understand what the patient's values are in that circumstance. And that often helps a lot in terms of modifying how we assess the risk. To give an example of that, my default response to the old demented patient on Coumadin who's fallen and hit their head is going to be that they should get a CT scan of their head. But I've had circumstances where I actually haven't done that because I've talked with the patient's family and they've made it very clear that they wouldn't consider any sort of intervention, even if you found something important with that, that even knowing whether or not there's something there isn't important to them because their goals and their values in that circumstance is to just manage mom's symptoms and try and keep her as comfortable as possible. So in those circumstances, the, the talk about risk and communication 
communication of that actually becomes much easier when you really understand where the patient and the family is coming from. I want to move on to the second point that we had brought up, which is bias. You know, even the most rigorous appearing papers published in high-impact journals are subject to bias. We know that even parts of major guidelines from the American Heart Association are largely based on low levels of evidence and expert opinion, sometimes with financial conflicts of interest even. Dr. Himmel, how exactly are journal articles biased? What is bias? Bias is basically any behavior in which you are introducing non-random error. Or to put it differently, any behavior in which you're producing systematic error, error that was not due to chance. Now, there's lots of rules, a lot of questions I have to ask. And whether you're looking at a diagnostic test or whether you're looking at a therapeutic intervention, the questions are somewhat different. So to give you a flavor of some of the questions that you might ask when critically appraising a diagnostic journal article in emergency medicine... Here's a list of questions from the best evidence in EM diagnostic critical appraisal checklist that we'll have on the written summary in the blog post for you. So first question is, is the clinical problem well-defined? Next is, does the study population represent the target population? In other words, is there any spectrum bias? Next is, does the study population focus on ED patients or are the patients ICU or admitted patients or outpatients? In other words, does the population that's being studied apply to your population? Did the study recruit patients consecutively? In other words, was there a selection bias? Was the diagnostic evaluation sufficiently comprehensive and applied equally to all patients? In other words, was there no verification bias? Were all diagnostic criteria explicit, valid, and reproducible? Was the reference standard appropriate? Was there good follow-up? Was a likelihood ratio represented in the paper? And lastly, was the precision of the measure of diagnostic performance good enough? So these are all the potential biases in a diagnostic paper. Dr. Hicks is now going to comment on how we can never get rid of all bias and how bias might actually help us. I think bias is a tricky thing. I would think of it in two contexts. One, when you're looking at, at research and evidence. And I guess what I'd say about that, I don't know that science will ever eliminate bias completely. We, you know, at journal clubs and so on, we get into ripping apart papers and it becomes this, you know, this science fetishism, this strange self-pleasuring exercise we all go through and just tearing a paper apart, even if it's a very well done randomized controlled trial. And you can end up in this, you know, evidence-based state of purgatory where nothing is really acceptable and good enough or free enough of bias or methodologic error to ever be applied to anything. And we do run that risk sometimes. I think what's important is not to, to seek to completely eliminate bias in research, but to identify, to understand that it's there to appreciate how it limits the application of evidence to practice and then accommodate that into our clinical decision-making. But bias isn't always a bad thing. We use bias all the time very effectively in our decision-making. We are biased in our emergency practice to see the worst first. I mean, that's a heuristic, that's a forcing strategy we use all the time. Even though when we look at chest pain, the most likely thing might be musculoskeletal in a particular patient. We still exercise a fair bit of bias in saying, well, is it a acute coronary syndrome? Is it a, is a neurotic dissection? And so on. That's a way of looking at a problem. That's a bias that we introduce all the time in emergency practice. And it's actually probably a good thing. So, you know, Pat Crosscarry talks about rephrasing it as a cognitive disposition to respond. CDR, it's a bit of a jargony phrase. But the idea is you're trying to take the negative connotation away from the notion of bias accepting that we're never going to really eliminate it from our framework and that it actually can be kind of an important part of our practice. We need to understand how it impacts our decision-making in a negative way, but we also have to to understand how we can harness it to develop positive forcing strategies, positive decision-making strategies in eMERGE. So now that we have an understanding of the concept of bias, let's talk about the more nuts and bolts stuff of EBM that we need to know in order to use the information we garner from EBM effectively in our diagnostic decision-making. One of the most important concepts to understand before we order a diagnostic test is that not all tests are perfect. Dr. Deshansky, can you explain to our listeners in what way diagnostic tests are imperfect? I think in 
almost every way there they have elements of imperfection to them you know in in life there are very few things that are absolute and that's probably even more true in medicine and is certainly true when it comes to the diagnostic tests that uh, we apply in our in our clinical practice and part of the issue that we have i think is that we tend to think about diagnostic tests in a much more binary way. It's sort of the way that our brains default to considering these things. So we tend to think of them as yes or no. The disease is present. The disease isn't present. But most of the time, the tests really don't work that way. They fall along some kind of normative curve. And there's very little on those curves that are really absolute. There are rarely any sort of tests where that have perfect sensitivities or specificities or predictive values or, or likelihood ratios that are really absolute. And so just being aware of that is important. And it means that when we're interpreting the results of our tests, we have to have a good understanding of what the statistical and performance characteristics of that test are so that we know the limitations of it and what the result of that test means in the context of a particular patient or a particular clinical context or circumstance. I think the word dichotomy or binary, those two words are very, very important here. And what I've done recently is rather than ask myself, what is the diagnosis? I ask myself, what is the probability of a diagnosis? And when I look at a diagnostic test, the question to answer is, is not, does the person have this diagnosis or not? The question is, if this test is positive, how much more likely is that diagnosis than it was before the test? So most tests aren't to tell you whether the disease is present or not present is to tell you whether the disease is more likely to be present or less likely to be present. It sounds like you're talking about the test threshold. Let's talk a little bit more about that, understanding what the test threshold is and why that's important to your decision-making in, in ordering a test. So you can think about test thresholds as the probability of disease below which or above which there would be no further testing that would be considered necessary for that circumstance. The threshold uh, that we use for tests varies depending on the clinical circumstance and the diagnosis that we're considering. A very high-value, high-risk diagnosis may have a very, very low test threshold. So the person that you're considering an aortic dissection in, you're really going to want to have a low test threshold because you really can't afford to miss that diagnosis. If it's somebody with a run-of-the-mill pharyngitis, you can accept missing a strep throat in that patient, and so your test threshold is going to be quite different. There are ways you can actually calculate the test threshold in a, in a very systematic way by knowing the test performance characteristics and so on. But in practice, a lot of clinicians actually just do this implicitly. They come up with a, a gestalt idea in their head, and that's their test threshold, and that determines whether or not they're going to decide to do investigations or not. And we modify where that threshold is depending on what the elements of data are that we've collected through our history and our physical exam. And that then informs our decision about whether or not we're going to pursue further testing. So every little data point along the way, I mean, in a way, each historical feature is sort of a test. Do they have this particular historical feature, yes or no? And that'll bring you closer to one end of the spectrum or the other of the likelihood of the patient having that particular diagnosis and bringing all those data points together, then you put the patient somewhere on that line and then decide, okay, is it very likely that this patient has this disease? Is it not very likely that they have this disease? And what, based on my risk tolerance, am I willing to say, okay, I, there's low enough risk that I can let this patient go home or this patient has a high enough risk that I'm going to pursue more tests to confirm the diagnosis. This meanders a bit into the nature of expertise and clinical expertise, which is an entity that's a bit difficult to understand in and of itself. But it's a bit of a fallacy that we approach problems differently than novice learners and, and we go about sort of collecting and analyzing data differently. That's probably not true. 
the, the truth about expertise is experts know more stuff and they organize it a bit differently in their brain compared to novice learners. And what that means, practically speaking, is just what you were getting to a second ago, that however you want to define an expert, an expert is better at doing what Dr. Himmel was alluding to before, which is organizing probabilities. They arrange probabilities better based on past experience and understanding of the literature and understanding of the science better than a novice would. And I want to hit on that point again, because I think it's incredibly important that tests do not communicate presence, absence of disease in a binary fashion. They push around your probabilities based on the performance of the test. And that's where we fall down, because if you don't have a sense of what your probabilities are in the first place, it becomes very hard to push them around when looking at test results. Your pretest probability becomes and should always be extremely important when it comes to interpreting diagnostic tests. There was a, uh, an interesting case report in CGEM a few years back now on aortic dissection. It was basically a, a male who had Marfan syndrome who had tearing chest pain that radiated to his back and a pulse differential in his upper extremities. This was a while back, so I think he had an x-ray that was normal and then he had a CTA that was inconclusive. But the pretest probability in the circumstance was so high, he went on to either have a formal angiogram or transthoracic echo or something. It was the third or fourth diagnostic test that confirmed the diagnosis. And the pitfall in that circumstance would be, well, my chest x-ray is fine and I've done a CAT scan and that's fine. So the test is telling me the disease is not there, but everything else in the universe is screaming that this patient has an aortic dissection. And I think we fall down on that principle quite often that we really believe in our heads. Maybe we believe that something is there. This patient is absolutely having a heart attack based on the symptoms they're showing me, but look, their cardiogram is fine and the troponin is negative. So it can't be that. And the aortic dissection is a particularly informative thing, speaking to this element of diagnostic threshold and risk. I mean, that's a catastrophic disease if you miss it, and you have to th- set your threshold awfully high in terms of ruling out the diagnosis when your pretest probability is high. Those authors argue that, that one confirmatory test when your probability is super high is actually probably not enough, and that you likely need to go on to at least two before you're really comfortable, whether it's a transthoracic echo or formal angiogram, a CTA, before you're really, really comfortable in saying this is not that. Why is this all important? Well, whether you're a car mechanic or a doctor, your first question is, am I going to act or not act? Car mechanics would probably earn more, just throwing that out there. (laughs) That's a factor. So is this actionable or not actionable? I don't know. Well, what's the diagnosis? Well, you'll never really know what the diagnosis is, but you have some idea what the diagnosis probably is. Uh, but let's say you're not sure if it's low enough to not act or high enough to act. Then you need a test. The test is not going to tell you what the diagnosis is, but it's going to tell you if it's more likely or less likely. And then if it's more likely or less likely than before the test, you go back to your first question. Am I going to act or am I not going to act? That's why this stuff is all important. So the only reason that history is important and the physical is important and diagnostic test is important is you have to decide, are you going to act or not act? The next thing we all have to accept is there is no absolute truth. We're all estimating the truth. The statisticians call it a point estimate. We're just estimating what the truth is. And hopefully we're close enough that we can make a decision and then we can take an action and then reevaluate our position. So that's, I think, how this all fits together. We're all basically risk meters, probabilistic assessors, and the sooner we realize that, we actually become very honest. Because if we ask ourselves, what's the diagnosis, we're liars. Because you never know for sure. Everybody knows this is nowhere. Everybody knows. I've stopped asking my interns, what's the diagnosis? Instead, I ask them, what do you think the person probably has? What's the probability of that diagnosis? 80%. Okay, tell me about the other 20%. Tell me about the other 5%. And when you think probabilistically, suddenly you become freed from the burden of certainty, freed from the burden of the correct answer, and you take a, a view of the world which is honest. And the honest answer is there's no certainty. That brings up, you say, free from the burden of certainty. You know, more and more our specialty is becoming obsessed with being 100% perfect all the time, which of course is impossible. But we seems like we're becoming less and less risk tolerant 
And certainly south of the border, they're less risk tolerant than we are here in Canada. I guess the real question is, when do you act? Right. So whether you're south of the border or north of the border, you're probably going to come up with the same pretest probability. Regardless of where you're located, you're probably going to come up with the same more or less post-test probability. But what's very different is basically the value system. And the value system is often a reflection of whether you're risk-averse or not risk-averse, or how risk-averse you are or you aren't. That's where the values come in. So the risk-averseness enters the value part. And of course, the value part is the last question to ask before you take an action. Right? So what does evidence-based medicine say? You look at the evidence, you ask if it's valid. If it's valid, you ask, is it important and is it accurate? That's all about statistical significance and confidence intervals. And if it's valid, and if it's important, if it's clinically significant, then what are the values? And then the concept of values enters in the whole concept of risk aversiveness. If you're absolutely risk averse, if you decide under no circumstances will you ever be wrong, then you have a value where you have no tolerance for error, no tolerance for not acting where you could later have been told to have been acted then you'll make a very different decision to someone who has different set of values. That's why you've got to ask the patient, what are the patient's values? And how much risk does the patient want to take? So it's, it's very, very tough. Even though you can't really answer all these questions, you at least have to be aware of your own tendencies and your own prejudices. Because to the extent you're aware of your own prejudices, you can at least more closely approximate the truth. That was so good. I think I'll just run it again. Because to the extent you're aware of your own prejudices, you can at least more closely approximate the truth. So when talking about risk tolerance and over-investigation, the Choosing Wisely campaign, an initiative to help physicians and patients talk about unnecessary tests and procedures and make smart and effective choices, came out just this past year in 2014. In a survey of physicians, they found that nearly three quarters of them believe that the frequency of unnecessary tests in the healthcare system is a very or somewhat serious problem. The top reasons physicians say they order unnecessary tests are one, concern about malpractice issues, two, just to be safe, three, wanting more information for reassurance. Other influences reported were patients' insistence on getting the test done, wanting to keep patients happy, not having enough time with the patients, and having access to new technology in their practice. So Dr. Hicks, what's your opinion on our willingness to take risks in emergency medicine, and how do you think we should be thinking of risk to maximize good care of our patients? Risk is, a, I think it's an interesting phrase. First of all, I'd say as a profession, I think emergency, emergency medicine is, we excel at handling uncertainty. I mean, it's a core principle of what we do. And we talk about this all the time that, you know, you may never come to a diagnosis, but you're within a range of probabilities, fairly certain that, that a particular disease is or is not present. When I talk to students who are considering the job, I tell them that over and over and over again, that you have to be comfortable not knowing the answer. If you need to know everything in a very controlled set of circumstances, then become an ophthalmologist and sit in a dark room and look at one particular organ for the rest of your life. No knock against ophthalmologists, but that's not the game that we play. You mentioned that we're becoming more and more risk averse. Um, in my own practice, I suppose it seems to come down very much to, as you were suggesting before, individual tendencies and tolerance. I don't think we're ever going to account fully for the notion that where I am comfortable ruling out acute coronary syndrome is going to be the same as where Dr. Hellman is comfortable ruling out acute coronary syndrome. It relates to who they are, their past experiences, their personality. And as long as people are bringing their personalities to the practice of medicine, I think that's going to be influential on their tolerance of risk. I don't think it would be a good thing if we all approach risk the same way. Within my group, I would say there's a large range of comfort with, say, I don't know, sending home a patient uh, with chest pain. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. That individual practice variation is part of what we do, and I don't know that we're ever going to eliminate it. We can, we can inform those sorts of decisions with evidence and with practice guidelines. And again, choosing wisely is a good example of that. And we can talk about strategies for making people a bit more comfortable with uncertainty because they do exist. 
but I don't know that we should be seeking to eliminate it altogether. I was just going to make a little comment about uh, the society's tolerance for, for risk and so on. And I think over the course of my career, we have seen an evolution where people in society in general have a lower risk tolerance, a lower threshold for adversity in life in general. And I think with respect to their health in particular, I think a lot of us just have the expectation that everything should be good all the time. And that's what people expect when it comes to their health care. But I think what has not come along with that is a corresponding understanding of risk and the things that we use in medicine in order to make our determinations. And so I think there's a, a disconnect between that, that we have a role in trying to address in the way that we practice in medicine. So sometimes we need to reorient our patients' expectations of what medicine is actually able to offer them. Risk varies not only from country to country, province to province, city to city. It varies from hospital to hospital and from borough to borough. If you're practicing in a socioeconomic area characterized by poverty and marginalization and recent immigrants who can't speak English, or you're practicing in an upper middle class area with wealthy individuals, your risk tolerance to that community you're practicing in may vary a great deal. Certain emergency cultures value speed, quick decision-making, and moving the meat as fast as possible. Other cultures value profound, complex diagnostic thinking. Depending where you're practicing, your whole value system may be very influenced by the culture you're in. It's really quite dramatic. And anybody who works in two or three hospitals will quickly realize when you go from hospital A to hospital B, your whole concept of risk is going to vary dramatically. Now, we know in society what our society is prepared to accept. Okay, generally speaking, what is our risk tolerance for missing a myocardial infarction? Zero. What's our society's risk for pulmonary embolism, for missing a PE? It's probably about 2%. What's our risk for missing a strep throat? Quite high. We probably have a 20 or 30 or 40% risk tolerance for missing that. So every disease is different. Every society determines its risk, and explicitly or implicitly, you're actually accepting those risks more or less. But it's being modified by your patient, by what you are, your particular hospital, whether it's the beginning of your shift or the end of your shift, who your colleagues are, and the mistakes you've made in the last year. These are all the factors to consider. But I can tell you explicitly or implicitly, every society, every hospital has a pretty clear idea of what risks they're prepared to accept in diagnostic uncertainty. So the advice is super, super important. I think that the discussion that you have with patients about how to communicate risk and uncertainty is extremely important. You know, if I can just offer my perspective on it, one of the things that I see as most problematic is, say you're assessing a patient for belly pain and you do a bunch of stuff and you do a bunch of tests and you come back and you say, you know what, everything is fine. Your belly pain is nothing. Go home. And you, you see that quite commonly. I think that's a much more dangerous thing to tell a person than, Dr. Himmel talked about honest practice. I say the words, look, quite honestly, I don't know what's causing your belly pain. Based on my assessment and uh, the tests that we've ordered and my experience, I don't believe it's anything worrisome or dangerous. And then I get into a discussion about discharge instructions and follow-up and so on. But I think one of the most important things we can do when it comes to managing risk and managing social expectations, which I agree are changing, is communicating to patients the fact that we are uncertain. I think that's extremely important. I think our big doctor egos get in the way of doing that a lot of the time. And I think we think we're doing our patients a favor by saying, look, you're, you've got nothing, you're fine, go home. When in fact, we're probably doing them a disservice. If for no other reason, then they may stay at home longer with a ruptured appendix because the doctor told me that I was fine. Well, Corey Slovis said it the best long time ago. Corey Slovis from the States, of course, a famous American bridge doctor who said, good advice is more important than a good diagnosis. He's got a very good point. What he's basically saying is a accurate diagnosis is impossible Uncertainty always exists. Communicate the uncertainty and give the patient a plan. Absolutely. 
So we've talked about risk in terms of diagnostic workup and what we're willing to accept as a diagnostic miss or not. How does risk play into the situation where we have a crashing patient in front of us? As our tolerance for risk is becoming lower and lower in terms of missing a diagnosis, how does that affect our tolerance for risk when it comes to taking care of critically ill patients? When you declare a crisis, when you declare a patient sick or critical, or you say this person is septic and they're in septic shock, once you do that, you have to own it and you have to manage it. And people maybe are reluctant given what we know about sepsis, or you say this is a failed airway. Perhaps you're just not comfortable doing a surgical airway because it's been 15 years or you've never done one in your career. It's an interesting phenomenon to watch where people just don't seem to be catching the situation failing the way you see it failing. And if you ever have a conversation with them about it, it often relates back to that. In anesthesia, this is a very common pitfall. Martin Bromley, I don't know if you've seen him before, the the aviation guy become patient safety advocate, cites these examples in anesthesia all the time where it's clear to everyone in the room looking back at a case that this is a failed airway and they needed a surgical airway, but nobody was willing to declare it as such. The words were never spoken and the patient went on to anoxic brain injury because people were reluctant to act. Right. And the psychology behind why that happens is, is really quite interesting to see. Well, it's all about social proof and the momentum <laughs> of decision-making. So what you've just described, Chris, I see every single day. I'll give you a classical example. You're fixing somebody's colleague's fracture. The patient's getting procedural sedation, and suddenly you think the patient's not breathing. So look at the patient and he hasn't taken a breath or she hasn't taken a breath for 25 seconds. And you ask the next person, you think that person's breathing? And the next person, you think that person's breathing? And you're all sitting around saying, gee, I wonder if they're breathing or not. At which point I say, maybe we should get a BVM and give them a breath. Is that a good idea? That happens all the time. We do not act. What's the reason for that? Well, I think it's premature closure. It's social proof, it's the momentum of a decision, and it's basically fear, fear of admitting something's happened you didn't really want to happen. So in terms of risk, uh, there's two risks, right? There's the risk of action and the risk of inaction. In terms of investigation, there's the risk of the investigation. There's the risk of the CT scan. And society by and large, patients by and large, underestimate dramatically the risk of the intervention, the risk of the investigation, and by and large, overestimates dramatically the benefit of action. Doctors, depending on their recency, on their recent experience and their age, can fall into different sort of planes of belief. Doctors who are just beginning practice tend to be risk-averse. They're pretty careful about everything. Once you become very confident, you tend to believe what you do is more valuable than it probably is, and the risk of investigations are probably less risky than they really are. Then when you have a couple of bad experiences, you change dramatically. So we're happy aware that our, our whole concept of the risk of intervention and the risk of not intervening and the risk of investigations are all very, very real. Therefore, the benefit-harm ratio is uh, profoundly important. We talk about this uh, all the time. It bears mentioning as well, since we're kind of blend the, the concepts of diagnostic testing and, and risk aversion, there's also the false premise that more investigations means more certainty. And I think we have to be careful with that concept as well. Not only are you likely to find a bunch of stuff that you didn't mean to find that may be incidental, the classic example being a lung nodule that gets worked up at the yin-yang for, for reasons that it was discovered as an incidentaloma. But you know, you get a bunch of negative tests on something. Maybe you shotgunned a bunch of investigations in a confused patient. I mean, hey, we all do it. You get a bunch of stuff back that's normal and you become falsely reassured. And so your comfort level goes up, your sense of risk goes down. And that may be a false premise when, you know, all the tests you've done don't address the, the fact that the patient is actually encephalopathic and what they need is an LP for that. So it can work in both directions. You know, doing more tests can lead to figuring stuff out that you didn't need to know about or causing harm by way of discovering incidentalomas. And it can also lull you into a false sense of security to say, well, hey, I just I ticked as many boxes as I could. Screw it. That's good enough. And all of that is normal. So the patient's probably fine. And we make mistakes in both directions, I think. Dr. Himmel's now going to talk about some examples of how the predictive value of a test affects our decision making. Now, Jerry Hoffman from the States says time and time again, 
do not do the dimer when the risk of the disease of polymetabolism is zero. He didn't say no risk, but zero risk. So if a 25-year-old athlete comes into the emergency department playing football, and he was kicked in the gastrocnemius by his opponent, and now has pain in his calf, don't do a D-dimer. Because the chance of that person having a polymetabolism or a DVT is basically zero. But let's say you choose to D-dimer everybody with a sore calf, including football players who just got struck in the calf. Will a certain number of them have a positive D-dimer? Undoubtedly. What's the predictive value of a D-dimer and people's risk is zero? Their predictive value is zero. Why is that? Because predictive value is very dependent on the instance of the disease. Similarly, if somebody gets the D-dimer before you saw the patient and it comes back positive, do not be a victim of a test. I'm talking about the physician now. Don't be a victim of a test. If a test comes back positive, and if your opinion that predictive value is ridiculously tiny, do not feel obliged to act. I've often heard somebody say, I'll never get that test, I'll have to act if it's positive. On the converse, somebody would say, don't get a D-dimer, because if it's positive, I have to act. And my answer would be, no, you don't. You don't have to act. What you have to do is ask yourself, what's the predictive value of that test? And if your opinion is extraordinarily low, you do not have to act. The test doesn't tell you that the disease is there or isn't. You decide that, and the test helps you shift probabilities based on the result. So it, it's, it's maddening at times. We, there's an authority gradient to diagnostic testing. We accept a, th- a certain degree of authority from, say, a negative CAT scan, uh, even though we really believe a patient has an appendicitis. We fall victim to that all the time, and we really, really shouldn't. We don't give ourselves, I think, as diagnosticians enough credit for being able to make reasonable decisions in the absence of confirmatory tests. Dr. Hicks is going to return to the topic of using evidence-based medicine in making diagnostic decisions by referring to an old article out of the Canadian Medical Association Journal from April 1st, 1985, that outlines four principles of diagnostic decision analysis. Principle number one is that in the diagnostic context, patients do not have a disease, only probability of disease, which we've talked about already. Principle number two, diagnostic tests are merely revisions of probabilities, and we've talked about that as well. Principle number three, test interpretation should precede test ordering, which Dr. Hicks will explain in a minute. And principle number four, in general, If the revisions in probabilities caused by a diagnostic test do not entail a change in subsequent management, use of the test should be reconsidered. So let's hear what Dr. Hicks has to say about this old CMAG article. You know, if people are looking for a great reference on this, there's a, I'm going to forget the author's name, but I'm sure we can put it in the notes. It was a CMATCH paper called Pathways Through Uncertainty. And it goes through kind of the four key principles of diagnostic test ordering and interpretation, several of which I try and adhere to on a daily basis, and many of which we've already talked about. One of them is that diagnostic tests don't confer a diagnosis. They confer a probability of a diagnosis. One of my favorites is test interpretation should precede test ordering. And I say that to residents all the time and they look at me like I'm crazy. And really what that's saying is you should have a sense of what you're going to do with a, with a result most pertinently, what to do with a negative result before you even get it. You should have interpreted those tests before they even come back and understand how they're going to influence or not influence your care. And one that's very pertinent to their fourth rule in the paper that's very pertinent to emergency medicine is if it's not going to influence what you do, don't order it. And we say that all the time. That's kind of an emergeism. They go through a couple of really interesting examples And it went kind of like this. It was a case example where they talked about the diagnostic performance of a given test for a moderately high stakes diagnosis, not pharyngitis, but not acute coronary syndrome. And your pretest probability of this diagnosis was about 50%. And your test has a sensitivity of 80% and a specificity of 20%. Reasonably sensitive, not terribly specific. What is your post-test probability? Is this a useful test that should be used all the time, a kind of useful test that should be used some of the time, or a useless test that should never, ever be used. And when you pull the audience, as I did for this one particular case, the majority of people will hedge and say, well, it's probably a kind of a useful test that maybe in some circumstances might be useful. The answer is it's a useless test that should never be used. 
because if you actually go ahead and calculate the likelihood ratios, it's one for everything if you do the math on it. So your pretest probability equals your post-test positive likelihood and your post-test negative likelihood. Everything stays the same. The test changes nothing. Stats can do interesting things. The numbers can do interesting things and they can fool you in interesting ways. And, you know, the reality is we do have tests out there. You know, white blood cell count is a great example of, you know, it's slightly worse than flipping a coin when it comes to helping you make a diagnosis. We really need to have a sense of what, you know, as Walter's already alluded to, sensitivity, specificity, which are characteristics of the test. And then more pertinently, how those translate into usable likelihood ratios that affect your, your post-test probability. So we'll have this paper, Diagnostic Testing Revisited, Pathways Through Uncertainty from CMAG from back in 1985 on the written summary and blog post. Next, Dr. Dushensky is going to comment about the fear of litigation when it comes to risk tolerance. You mentioned that one of the things that tends to drive this is the the fear of litigation and the, the fear of malpractice suits. And that often is heavily influenced by, again, what happens south of the border. And there's even some much more insidious ways in which that actually works its way into our system. A lot of the medical literature that is published that we read comes out of uh, American sources. And so the trend in terms of the how conservative people are or how aggressively people investigate tends to filter through that literature and influence us, even if we don't practice within that particular system. Some people have felt that malpractice reform is something that might actually help to decrease the incidence of over-investigation. Unfortunately, the evidence from the literature on that is actually a little bit spotty. If you look at jurisdictions in the United States that have implemented some forms of tort reform, it doesn't actually seem that it's really decreased the incidence of malpractice suits all that much. It may decrease the judgments uh, amounts uh, and so forth, but whether or not that's going to trickle down to actual changes in clinical practice is somewhat dubious. On the other hand, you can look at uh, other sort of practice environments that have a, a very different approach to malpractice. In New Zealand, for instance, they've got no-fault medical liability designs where it doesn't encourage the the type of malpractice lawsuit that we tend to see in the, the North American environment. And that seems to be more efficient for the system, makes better use of resources, makes sure that people actually get compensated in the event that there is harm in those circumstances. And it's at least potentially possible that that could decrease the likelihood that people will over-investigate for fear of being sued. In fact, the truth of it is, being sued in Canada is no problem at all. Once you've been sued a couple of times, you're okay about it. You get so used to it. It doesn't bother you anymore. And the truth of it is, if you get sued in Canada, does it affect your livelihood? No. Does it affect your ability to get more insurance from the insurance company? No. Getting sued in Canada is a non-issue. After you've been sued a few times and your ego has taken a bit of bruising, then you're okay about it. Depending on the environment that you work in, there are some direct and indirect financial incentives as well that go along with ordering more tests. And if you can control some of those financial incentives, maybe you can influence practice in a way that results in less test ordering. So that's some important systems issues. Now Dr. Dushensky is going to talk about some more individual factors. I think on the individual level, there are things that we can do that can encourage us to use a little bit less of our investigative resources than what we do right now. And one of the most important ones of those we've alluded to already in this talk, which is simply spending more time actually talking to our patients. People sometimes substitute ordering a whole bunch of tests for actually doing a better assessment of the patient. And if we can actually spend a little bit more time talking to the patient, collect a little bit more relevant information, actually do a good physical exam, which sometimes seems to be falling out of vogue, you may actually find that at the end, based on that clinical assessment itself, you can actually do less testing than you otherwise thought you would. This may seem counterintuitive in an environment that we work in now where there's so much pressure and so much emphasis on throughput and, uh, and time management and department management. But 
if you look at it, that doesn't really even have all that much face validity because if you can avoid doing a couple of CT scans or imaging tests, you can actually save a lot of time in the patient's arc of care and their stay in the department. And then lastly, I think the thing that we need to consider at an individual level in our in our clinical practice is simply considering the risk of the underlying conditions that you're considering for the patient in front of you and deciding what the urgency of the investigations really is. When we practice in emergency medicine, we tend to frame things in our head where we want an immediate response. We want some kind of answer right away. We feel like we always have to come to some sort of conclusion by the end of our patient encounter. But not everything needs to be worked up. Not everything needs to come to as definitive an answer as possible during that visit. There are things that can be deferred. Sometimes you can wait. Sometimes time is simply your ally and you don't need to investigate everything. Uh, the example of the patient who comes in with right lower quadrant pain that you see is a great example. Appendicitis is in your differential diagnosis for that patient, but you're not really suspicious by the time that you finish taking your history and doing your physical exam. There's nothing wrong with that patient uh, being given appropriate discharge instructions and being sent home. And I, I do this on a on a fairly frequent basis for those patients who I think are, are fairly low risk. I don't necessarily order imaging investigations for them. The key is you've got to talk to the patient. You've got to give action and time-specific discharge instructions about when they should come back. But this is a reasonable strategy. These patients don't explode when they walk out of the hospital. If you're, if it's a patient that you're thinking is in that fairly low risk category, the risk of allowing some time to pass before making a decision about further investigations is quite reasonable. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of disincentive in our system that goes along with that because I can take that course of action and 50 times in a row I send the patient home and they do perfectly fine and their symptoms resolve and they never have to come back. But for the one patient who does end up coming back doing exactly what I told them to on the discharge instructions, that's going to be called a diagnosis failure, right? It's that case of appendicitis that you missed, Dushansky. You know, you remember that, that guy that you sent home. And so there's a lot of disincentive in the system to pursue that type of management for the patients that we have. But I think we really need to try and encourage this and especially with the generation of physicians that we're training right now. You know, not only that, but I, I've heard discussion in terms of quality metrics and funding models that, you know, a patient who returns to the emergency department as instructed may actually be a hit to your funding model. There's a financial disincentive to uh, encouraging return for repeat assessment, which I think is a real downside to that, that sort of model. Sticking with the lower abdo pain example, completely agreeing with what we just heard uh, from Dr. Jusensky that I said to a patient, this could be an appendicitis. I don't believe it is, but it certainly could be. Therefore, if X, Y, and Z happen, come back. And I can think of an example where I gave a patient those discharge instructions. She had a benign abdomen, but right lower quadrant pain. I chose not to pursue investigations, but I said, look, you know, this could get worse over time. Maybe this is an early appendicitis, but it certainly doesn't appear that way now. So keep an eye out for the following things to come back. I was on shift the next day. She came back. Her pain was worse. We imaged her. She did have an appendicitis. The interesting thing about that was neither of us saw that as a failure in the end. She was comfortable with the notion that she'd been instructed appropriately and that she came back as instructed. And we made the diagnosis in what I think is a, is a fairly timely fashion. And there's a real risk of looking at your own practice and thinking, well, I failed there somehow. I, I, I should have picked that up earlier. I missed something. Well, I looked at that example and thought, well, actually, that was just fine, what, what we chose to do in that circumstance. Because, as you say, maybe the other 49 patients go home and stay home, and that's, that's just fine, too. So these discussions take time. And quite frankly, until you begin forcing yourself to think of probability, until you begin forcing yourself to thinking about the risks of waiting and not waiting, uh, this would be a very foreign sort of concept. So you've got to liberate yourself from certainty, free yourself into the world of probabilistic thinking, begin practicing guessing at the probabilities. And there's an amazing book called Evidence-Based Physical Examination. This 300-page book goes through almost every possible imaginable physical examination, whether it's palpation, shake tenderness, rebound, hepatojugular reflex, and it gives you the likelihood ratio. 
So as you learn these things, uh, you can give better advice. Now, in terms of CT scans, the CT scan does not have a sensitivity and a specificity of 100% for anything. Now, I know I've told myself this again and again, but every time I get a CT scan report, I always tend to believe it. Well, I have this religious belief CT scans have a sensitivity and specificity of 100%, even though they don't. So what's the resolution to this uncertainty? Have a lot more faith in your clinical assessment. Have a lot more faith in the value of evidence-based medicine. Realize that likely ratios increase or decrease your pretest probability. If you haven't got a clue what the pretest probability is, then likely ratios are a total waste of time. Knowing the meaning of uncertainty and confidence intervals, these are very complex uh, concepts which take a lot of practice, but they're actually quite helpful, but not a religion. So that almost wraps it up for part one on our series for diagnostic decision-making. Before we go, the quote of the month is from Hippocrates. Life is short and the art long. The occasion instant, experiment perilous, decision difficult. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.